0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Have you ever felt like this? Looking back, I think I was suffering from imposter syndrome, quite convinced they were going to throw me out. We've all felt it, haven't we? But I'm still bowled over to hear this particular person say these words and resolved to do my best so that when they threw me out, I wouldn't have a guilty conscience. The thing is, her best was
2: seriously impressive. Welcome to Science Friction in National Science Week across Australia. I'm Natasha Mitchell. So this episode begins in the late 1960s.
0: At the Mullard Radio Observatory in Cambridge in 1967, the new instrument was perhaps the least glamorous telescope ever built.
1: <laughs> like a load of washing line. <laughs> We're at Cambridge University.
0: And it was to be operated full-time by one person, a girl, a graduate student who'd helped to build it, Jocelyn Bell.
2: And Jocelyn Bell, now Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, a leading astronomer with a long and illustrious career, is on the cast of a whopping discovery, a Nobel Prize-winning find, in fact, using a telescope she's helped to build from scratch, one designed to pick up radio frequency signals from
1: outer space. doesn't look anything like the CSIRO Parks Telescope, which is a big dish. This looks more like some sort of agricultural frame, you know, a big version of what you'd find in a vineyard, maybe. A vineyard that doesn't grow grape vines, instead it sprouts radio aerials.
2: In fact, more than 2,000 of them.
1: It was huge. 57 tennis courts would have fitted into that area. You were building this? Yes. We were actually using this telescope to look for quasars, because they twinkle. And this thing's specially designed to pick out twinkling things.
2: But one particular set of twinkling things caught Jocelyn's eye. And she went on to detect pulsars for the first time. One, two, three, four. The first four ever identified by humanity. She's going to tell that incredible story here and what pulsars, these dense energetic hearts of collapsed or dead stars, have allowed us to understand about the universe, but also more like how growing up amidst the troubles of Northern Ireland shaped her life, and how Jocelyn reconciles her Quaker faith with her scientific values. But I want to start with what first happened when her and her supervisor's discovery was announced to the world because get ready to gasp. When you had worked out that you'd discovered pulsars, Mm. you got a lot of attention. It was a sort of extraordinary position for a PhD student to be in. You were in the media, you were being interviewed by journalists. What was that like? A bit of a baptism
1: of fire I imagine. There was a lot of interest by journalists.
2: What
0: was the first reaction of her supervisor, Dr Tony Hewish? It's absolute nonsense. You don't believe this at all. It must be something artificial. Uh, nothing in nature could do this. So you disbelieve it as long as you possibly can.
1: And typically the interview would have both my thesis advisor, Tony Hewish, and myself there.
0: And here we can see Dr Tony Hewish, who will tell us more about it.
1: And they'd asked Tony Hewish about the astrophysical significance of this discovery.
0: With optical telescopes, one is limited to a range of observation about here. With radio telescopes, one can, however, detect galaxies at greater distances.
1: Everybody's first reactions were that it must be man-made. And then they turned to me for what they called the human interest. Second reactions, not really voiced very loud, were, well, perhaps it's little green men. Another civilization. And this was really, civil, as a young female sex object, like what they were my measurements? Bust, waist, hips, please. How tall was I? Would I describe myself as brun- brunette or blonde? No other hair colours were allowed, apparently. How many boyfriends did I have at once? All this kind of thing. Not an ounce of science in it. Oh. It was pretty grim. And I would have loved to have been really rude to them particularly the photographers who asked if I could undo some more of my blouse buttons for them. You know, you're a grad student, you haven't even written your thesis, you need references from your lab to get another job, you haven't got another job. I couldn't afford to be rude to them. Did your supervisor say anything? No, I just forgot what my vital statistics were. I just didn't know. Willfully forgot? Willfully forgot, yes. The discovery of pulsars for which you played
0: a decisive role, is a most outstanding example of how, in recent years, our knowledge of the universe has been dramatically extended.
2: So therefore, I don't quite understand, I've not understood why you haven't become embittered about what happened next. In 1974, your supervisor and a colleague won the Nobel Prize for the discovery that you had been a key part of. You were the second author on that paper. Yeah. And yet you you seem to have been perpetually philosophical and magnanimous about that. Your name was not on that Nobel
1: Prize and yet you were a key team member. Oh, but I was a student and the Nobel Committee didn't look at students. Do you think that's the reason why? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. But Nobel
2: winning work happens in people's 20s and 30s. That's well known.
1: Yes, but there's there's a supervisor around and and that's obviously the key figure. Uh, The picture that we used to have way back of how science was done was a senior male, often with a fleet of minions, be they grad students or technical help or what have you, and if the thing was successful, the supervisor took the credit. If the thing was unsuccessful, the supervisor took the blame. And the other people just didn't feature. Here's what Jocelyn's
2: supervisor, Anthony Hewish, said of the win without Jocelyn later on to the BBC.
0: I mean, my analogy really is a little bit like when you plan a ship of discovery and you go off... Um, and, and somebody up the masthead says, Land Ho, um, that's great but I mean uh, who actually inspired it and, 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 and conceived it and decided what to do when and so on. I mean there, there is a difference between Skipper and crew.
2: And controversially for many he told the BBC this too.
0: To be honest I don't think it would have mattered who'd been my student. I mean we it was a serendipitous discovery because such a piece of equipment had been set up. I mean, the discovery of pulsars was unavoidable once that survey had begun.
1: That was the way the Nobel Committee was thinking at that time. Do you agree with that? No, I don't actually. And when I've had students working with me, their, their name has gone first on the papers, for instance, because they're the ones whose careers need launching. But that was the picture of science for quite a while. So it wasn't about gender, you don't think? It was about hierarchy. Yes, they didn't know my gender. They didn't really need to know my gender. I was only a student. Yes, I mean, many
2: have begged to differ and think that you were delivered a great injustice.
1: Yeah, but I've done very well out of it because I've got every other prize that moves. <laughs> it's a lot more fun because there's parties most years. <laughs> and possibly a lot
2: less less dodgy than a Nobel Prize with all the formality that goes with that.
1: And not just the formality, but the aftermath. You're expected to have wise opinions on everything under the sun because you're a Nobel Prize winner in something. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> So there's a lot of pitfalls there.
2: (laughs) But let's go back to their actual discovery of pulsars. The team wasn't looking for what they found back in 1967. And if it wasn't for Jocelyn's acute eye, they may well have missed a
1: weird set of signals altogether. The University of Cambridge had one computer, the whole university. It had less memory than a laptop today. And it occupied a big room, you know, it was really, really primitive. And very few people had time on it, and we certainly didn't. Mm. So our data came out on reams of paper chart, rolls and rolls of paper chart, uh, with, uh, you know, red squiggly lines over it. And I read these squiggly lines to get my data.
2: Yes, I mean, this is the thing about astronomy, which intrigues me. There's a, it's so abstract in many ways. You're feeling in the dark. Mm-hmm. with the help of your data with the help of numbers with the help of charts and you're trying to read meaning into that data yeah. extraordinary meaning so you get these charts and what was that moment when you thought hmm
1: yeah well i was being incredibly thorough and most of the things i saw i could understand but there was one this one little anomaly occupied really a very small fraction, one in a 100,000. But it was an anomaly that kind of stuck in my brain Mm. until finally my brain twigged that I'd seen this anomaly before. And then you could go back through the relevant bits of chart and see, oh yes, it was there on that day. Oh, and it might have been there on that day, but I didn't actually notice it. But it was absent for three or four in between and absent for another two or three. And then here's the one I've just seen. A blip. Well... A squiggle. I called it scruff. It was a a little bit of signal that um, didn't make sense. It wasn't what I was meant to be looking for. And it wasn't the kind of interference, you know, that you working with radio will be aware of. So, yeah. Okay, so you have this little bit of
2: scruff. And then what do you do? You know, how do you probe further? You've got this
1: telescope pointed deep into the universe. Yeah. And you don't really know what you're looking at. One of the first things we did was to get an enlargement of of the signal. But the wretched thing, whatever it was, went on strike for a month. (laughs) And then finally one day we got it and I saw it was a string of pulses. Blip, 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 blip. Yes, because pulses are almost like timekeepers in the universe, aren't they? This rhythmic entity. Of course, the first thing is you think there's something wrong with the kit. So you're busy checking it out. And that was the really scary bit for me because I'd done all the wiring and I thought, my God, I've got some wires crossed, literally, oh. and they are going to throw me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, come back to that <laughs> imposter syndrome
2: feeling. That's shocking, but understandable. Yeah. But this could have been
1: interference with the telescope from some earthly object. It could have been, except the stars don't keep a 24-hour clock. The stars keep a 23-hour, 56-minute clock they get almost half an hour earlier every week. I'd been seeing this stuff, whatever it was, for a few months by then. Um, So it looked as if it went round with the stars. And the question was, what artifact could mimic that motion? So what is a pulsar? How did you come to know what a pulsar
2: actually is in the universe? This this sort of Dead star, if you like. I mean, energetic for for a a dead object, but a dead star, a star
1: that's exploded and kind of collapsed in on itself. That's right, yes. It actually took uh, work by quite a few astronomers to pin down what they were. But one of the important things was finding one in the middle of a big glowing mass of gas called the Crab Nebula in the constellation of Taurus. And we knew that was the remains of a star that had exploded about a thousand years previously. And we knew there was something funny looking in the middle. So when that turned out to be a pulsar, that kind of made sense. So we reckoned it was one of these big stars that explodes in the explosion, the core of the star gets compressed and shrinks right down to be about 10 kilometres radius. Which is tiny in the in the schema of a universe. Absolutely tiny, and yet they're quite massive. So they are incredibly dense, yeah. Did I hear you describe once that
2: a, the, the density of a neutron star, a pulsar at least, is the same, it, to help people imagine, it's the mm. 7 billion people
1: on the planet shoved into the head of a thimble. Yes, pushed into a sewing thimble. That's right. That's phenomenal. But that's only the average density. The centre is much more dense. (laughs) It's It's just impossible to fathom. It is. It's
2: unimaginable. Yeah. And yet you've spent your life imagining such things. Why did their discovery, this discovery that you made with colleagues...
1: How has it become a portal onto the universe since? It's useful for testing Einstein's theories, as well as having very interesting physics inside itself. We've already alluded to the density, and that produces some very extreme physics. So that's interesting. But these things also have very strong gravity, and so we've been using them to check out Einstein's theories of gravity which so far check out remarkably well. Gravitational waves are linked to pulsars, black holes are sort of the sisters of pulsars, if you like. Yeah, black holes are like the big sisters, big brothers. A pulsar isn't massive enough to collapse itself into a black hole, but if it gathered onto it a lot of material, it probably would collapse into a black hole. So there's quite a close relationship there but for me one of the really exciting things was they found gravitational waves from a pair of neutron stars orbiting each other and as they orbit they send out these gravitational waves they get closer and closer and they finally merge in one quite strong burst of gravitational waves.
2: Gravitational waves, those ripples in the fabric of space-time, were first predicted by Einstein and first detected back in 2015, making big headlines. In 2017, the detection of gravitational waves after the merging of two neutron stars made the news too. When neutron stars spin super, super fast, they become pulsars. Jocelyn, you mentioned a couple of times the imposter syndrome. It's interesting to hear you acknowledge that now. You know, you've since led a rich and fruitful career. You've been president of the Royal Astronomical Society, president of the Institute of Physics, president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, trailblazing a path in all of those arenas as as an astronomer and as a woman. And yet the
1: imposter syndrome has felt potent to you from that time, why? Yes, certainly when I was a a grad student. I started life in the northern part of the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, north of England. And suddenly, almost by accident, I thought I found myself in Cambridge, which is way down south, frightfully cultured, very suave. Everybody's very confident. And I feel a bit like a, a yokel from the outback, you know. Now, I've subsequently realized that the suaveness and confidence is entirely an act, Mm. but they did it. And as myself from, you know, the provinces, I wasn't savvy enough to suss that out initially. And I thought, oh, they're terribly bright. I'm not that bright. They've made a mistake admitting me. they are going to discover their mistake and they're going to throw me out. I, I now work in Oxford University and this is something that in places like Oxford you have to look out for with new students. yeah
2: profound anxiety and I think women yeah.
1: really take that to heart. Yes, I think women are more open to it than men. Highly self-critical. Yes and perhaps less good at putting a brave face on it to be honest. yeah
0: When you're demanding
1: equality
2: justice, back and to justice, your childhood in Northern Ireland. So Mm. Belfast born, born while the Second World War was being waged still, born while Northern Ireland was wrestling with its own deep divisions with the Troubles,
1: Mm. how did that shape you? Uh, The the net result was I wanted out (laughs) and as a teenager I couldn't get out fast enough. (laughs) We lived in a small town where everybody knew everybody else, where you were your parents' daughter and I found that claustrophobic and... It was a community where a lot of people were scared of science, I think because they were afraid it would contradict the Bible.
2: Well, your parents <laughs> weren't Catholic, they weren't Protestant, they were Quakers. They
1: were Quaker, and Quakers in Northern Ireland deliberately put themselves between the two communities as a bridge, so you could get shot at by both sides.
2: Oh, that's a burden to carry.
1: But it needs doing. Somebody's got to do it.
2: Ninth generation Quaker. Yeah. Where did science... And science education fit into the Quaker worldview as you were growing
1: up. The Quaker worldview, particularly in England, uh, was fairly liberal. Well, very liberal. And the attitude has been that as a Quaker, you're not told what you have to believe. You're told to work it out for yourself. And it's also accepted that it's quite likely that your beliefs will evolve a bit as you mature. So you actually see
2: these interesting parallels between the Quaker mindset as it's cultivated as a community Mm. and the scientific mindset.
1: Yes. In both you're actually working, relating to other people, sometimes working with other people, developing your ideas, be it religious ideas or scientific understanding, with other people. I know a lot of people have a picture of a scientist as a, a lone male with a bad hairdo working in a garret but actually there's very very little of that. They've got good hairdos and they work in teams. <laughs> exactly yes so you're batting ideas around within the team to try and understand what's going on with what you're looking at or to try and understand why your kit isn't working for instance. So a lot of it is teamwork and in in Quakerism Uh, you'll find people saying, well, you know, I don't think I really believe that. But you do, do you? And I say, yeah, I think I do. I didn't used to, but I think I do now. Uh, And so there's this interchange going on all the time. But there's nothing rigid in Quakerism that you have to subscribe to. Provided you've thought it out and got your position, your position will be respected. I guess if you ended up with a position that was too different on every topic, you might feel you were in the wrong place and take yourself off to some other denomination. But that's broadly the way Quakerism works. Where does a god then fit into your conception of the cosmological world? Well, I don't think I believe in a creator god. And I don't think I believe in a god that controls the world for you. You know, so it's no good praying that you pass your exam when you've done no work for it, that kind of thing. I don't believe in an interventionist God, but I think I do believe in a God that's kind of supportive to help you through situations, not by changing the circumstances, but by strengthening you. So Um, it's a more intimate
2: relationship between a God and yourself.
1: Yes, that's right. An
2: enabler, a motivator.
1: Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Natasha. Yep. (laughs) Interesting. It was an
2: interesting time when you were growing up, not the least because the backdrop of Northern Ireland's troubles Mm -hmm. was there. But in your teens, I think when you were 14, the Russians launched the first artificial Earth satellite, Sputnik 1. Yeah. So that's a phenomenal sort of situation to have around you and yet you turn up at high school and week number one, what do you discover happens on Wednesdays?
1: Oh yes, that that was very interesting. And I think probably is typical of experience for women of my generation in the UK. It's the first week of secondary school and Wednesday morning a message goes around the first year class that this afternoon the boys to such and such a room and the girls to another which I initially thought was sport that's yeah. why they're separating us but in fact they sent the girls to the domestic science room to learn cookery and needlework and they sent the boys to the science lab to learn science no choice no choice, no discussion that's just the way the universe was and I, my parents had promised me that I'd get to do science in secondary school so I was very disappointed but the domestic science teacher wasn't hearing anything about any change thank you very much and I think the head teacher's telephone got a bit hot uh, because not only did my parents call him, but so did one of the local doctors who had a daughter in my class. And indeed, there was a third set of parents. And so the next time the science class met, there were three girls. I think, Unreal. This, was a f- I think this was a first. The teacher made us sit right under his nose, you know, right up against his desk. It's clearly, he thought we were dynamite or something. Yeah, dangerous. Um, Dangerous, yes. Going to disrupt the class if he didn't keep a real eye on us. We did physics that first term, and without really an awful lot of effort, I came top of the class.
2: Ha! <laughs> of course, you had a very different experience when you ended up at a Quaker boarding school in York, and and over the years, having talked to a lot of scientists, it's often one key teacher yes. that has a defining influence in yes. their lives,
1: and and that burns on well into their adult life. Yeah. I was at a girls' boarding school and girls' schools, girls' boarding schools often had problems getting science teachers. And we did. We had a brilliant physics teacher who'd come out of retirement for a second time to teach us, but he was superb. He quickly recognised that I could do physics. And, and one of the things he allowed me to do, which wouldn't be allowed by health and safety these days, is he allowed me to go into the physics lab in the evenings with nobody else around and play with the equipment one of the things I decided to do was to make a lovely big chart of the magnetic field around a magnet wow. and of course she takes more than one night so I started the first night working on the bench second night I couldn't get it lined up to carry on and I couldn't work out why and I suddenly realized the magnet drawer was under the bench where I was working <laughs> and all these magnetic fields were coming through the bench and during the day people had been in the drawer the magnets were all rearranged the magnetic field was different and that's why I couldn't continue my plot <laughs> it's, the things you learn for yourself they really stick well they do
2: and, and and we don't often get to have that sort of self-directed exploration in
1: high school mm. science no no we wouldn't these days either in Britain because of health and safety <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's right. And it's highly formulaic and it's all very structured and uh, stuck within a curriculum. I might be exaggerating somewhat, but that certainly
1: was my experience. Mm. I think that's probably true to a fair degree, except these days kids get to do projects which are a bit more open-ended and self-directed. When you got to Glasgow University, was it a shock then? You'd been in
2: this girls' school. You'd had a supportive physics teacher. You'd been directing your own experiments as a teenager. Was it a shock to get inside that lecture
1: hall where you were the only woman? Yeah, in my final two years, I was the only woman. In the earlier years, there were other women around. But for the junior and senior honours, I was the only woman doing honours physics. At that time in Glasgow, it was the, in quotes, tradition that when a woman entered the lecture theatre, all the guys whistled, stamped, catcalled, banged the desk, made as much noise as possible. And it's one thing facing that in a group of women, you know, walking in together, but walking in on your own, it was tougher. But blushing, of course, would increase the volume of the the noise. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that you can control your blushing, I've lost the technique, but I know I could do it and I did do it regularly. So you walk in, you know, sort of pretending you don't hear, offering no reaction to them, just walk in and take a seat. You could have walked out at that point and you didn't. Why? Because I knew at that stage, in fact, I knew from my mid-teens that I wanted to be a radio astronomer and uh, getting a physics degree was one of the steps, essential steps along that road. So I had to get that physics degree. Dogged yep that doesn't do
2: you badly in life. like engineering astronomy in your country and ours
1: probably only has around 12 or 13 percent of women in it no 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 I can give you the figures. Good I can give you the figures I have worldwide figures from the International Astronomical Union. And I find these figures very important because they prove beyond doubt that it's not women's brains that are deficient. If you look at the worldwide data on women in astronomy, the world average is about 17% female of professional astronomers, and Australia is right on the world average. The other English-speaking countries are clustered just below Australia. This is the first hint that we're dealing with something cultural.
2: And then there's Argentina.
1: Argentina is phenomenal. South American countries in general have quite high proportions of women. So do the southern, used to be Catholic countries in Europe, France, Italy, Spain. Whereas the northern European used to be Protestant countries, they have very, very few women. Germany and the Netherlands. And right down the bottom, surprise, surprise, are India and Japan, which are in single figures.
2: What's going on in Argentina? It's something like 30 or 40%, isn't it?
1: Yeah. There are, I think, different things probably going on in different parts of the world. Mm. One issue is how prestigious is astronomy seen? Have all the men gone to engineering because that's considered more prestigious? Which Is is that why astronomy has quite a lot of women? Or is it because Argentinian women still live near their parents and the parents can help with the childminding? Key or is it because there are lots of state childminding facilities or is it because there's great diversity of incomes and there's a lot of poor women who are very happy to come in and be your nursemaid maid cook do the laundry while you go off and be an astronomer i think there's probably lots of different factors and different ones weigh in in different countries But it's really interesting to see that data. And gradually over the years, all the numbers are ramping up, you know, a percent or two every few years. Certainly the physics community, which is the one I know best, um, could benefit from more diversity, diversity of all sorts, not just gender, because it's very well established now that if you have a research group that's diverse, with people coming at the problem from different angles, it's likely to be more successful than a a more monochromatic group, shall we say, a less diverse group. That, that's now very well established in business, in research, in all sorts of areas. It does need good management, such a group. It's harder to manage than a group of people who think like you, but is ultimately much, much more successful. So I think one of the things actually is to get more scientists trained as manage, good managers of groups, which I'll probably get lynched for saying, but I think actually that's important. Well, not all bench scientists make good leaders, but you have loved leading others, it seems. There are some bench scientists that probably won't be leaders, but actually an awful lot of people can be leaders, with a little bit of encouragement and assistance along the way. Um, but yes, I have enjoyed it very much. Led a number of organisations, changed a number of organisations. Do you have the phrase here, serial offender? <laughs> Been a serial president? <laughs> And I quite like looking at how organisations are functioning and saying, well, you know, if we adjusted this just a little bit, it would actually go better. And would never have discovered I was good at it if I'd been a regular scientist, a regular male scientist, without any disruptions to my career. But because I've had to do lots of different things in my life, I've actually got quite a range of experience, which turns out to be useful sometimes. There's a benefit. Mm -hmm. To career breaks. Yeah, or or doing other things. You know, the only job I could get was as a such and such. So, okay, we'll do this and let's do it to the best of my ability and see what I can learn from it.
2: We'll make it work. Mm. Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a treat to talk
1: to you. Thank you, Natasha.
2: And Dame Bell Burnell visited CSRO's Parks Radio Telescope for the first time while she was here in Australia. More of half of all the pulsars that have been detected have uh, been detected by Parks. National Science Week has landed and we are asking you to dive a virtual reef this year. It's going to help scientists understand and classify corals on the Great Barrier Reef. Be a citizen scientist. Head to abc.net.au slash scienceweek. Also coming up, if you're in Melbourne from September, Science Friction Live is coming to the Melbourne Museum. I cannot wait for that. Stay posted. We'll put the details on our website. Next show, I'll be coming to you from Hobart's Beaker Street Science Festival with Mona founder, mathematical gambler, David Walsh. Love to hear from you. Tweet me at Natasha Mitchell and thank you to Melissa May, sound engineer. Oh, and before I go, also for Science Week, the ABC Science team is bringing you a stack of unsung secrets from science. And I thought I'd sneak mine in. Here it is. Dig a little deeper and there's always more to the story. Space is full of secrets.
1: I love thinking about the wiring that keeps us going.
2: For National Science Week, here's an unsung secret of science. Now, this year marks the 70th anniversary of the death of a scientist whose name you know well. Really well. We all do. Their name? Einstein. Yep, Mileva Maric, Einstein. Wait, what? Don't I mean Albert? Albert Einstein? The most recognisable scientist of the 20th century, if not ever? He of quantum physics fame and acclaim and a Nobel Prize? No, I really do mean Maleva. Einstein's first wife. She and Albert met as science students in Zurich and fell in love, and they shared their love of physics too. Maleva had been one of the first girls in Austria Hungary to study high school physics and she was the only woman in their polytechnic class together. In March 1901, Albert wrote How happy and proud I will be when the two of us together will have brought our work on relative motion to a victorious conclusion. Wait a tick, what's he saying there? Our work on relative motion? Now not to put too fine a point on it, but that's the work that led to the famous special theory of relativity which describes the constant speed of light and how space and time are intimately linked, which led to the general theory of relativity, which pretty much changed our understanding of the universe and nearly everything in it. Multiple accounts of Albert and Maleva's life together now confirm they collaborated on scientific projects, on mathematical problems, wrestling with them late into the night. And her support got his scientific career on track when he was flailing. When she became pregnant, Albert wrote imagine how lovely it will be when we will again be able to work together totally undisturbed. Maleva's name never appeared on any of Albert's famous papers, and her legacy is debated to this day. Was she a sounding board or a formidable collaborator? As Albert's fame skyrocketed, their relationship crashed. Albert had an affair with his cousin Elsa, who he later married. Dear Helena, my big Albert is
1: now very famous. Albert has devoted himself completely to physics, and it seems to me that he has little time, if any, for the family.
2: Maleva raised their two sons, one with debilitating schizophrenia, and she no doubt mourned the earlier loss of their daughter, who either was adopted out or died. It's not clear. When they divorced, Maleva is reported to have considered making her contribution to his work public. But Albert pushed back, calling her a non-entity, stating, no one will pay the least attention to your rubbish. Most of the letters from Albert to Maleva have been preserved, though they were suppressed from publication by his estate for decades. Sadly, though, few of Maleva's letters to Albert remain. So, parts of her early life in science alongside him will always remain a secret, an unsung secret.